This is On Being's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Sarah Kay. She's a spoken word poet and founder of Project V-O-I-C-E, Vocal Outreach into Creative Expression. I spoke with her on April 12, 2012, from the studios of APM in St. Paul, Minnesota. She was in the studios of Rhode Island Public Radio in Providence, Rhode Island. This interview is included in our show, Sarah Kay's Way with Words. Download the MP3 of that produced show at onbeing.org. Great. Thank you. Hi, Sarah. Good. Have you done, um, you've probably done ISDN interviews before, have you? Like this? With headphones? Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I um I actually think it's um I've actually really come to love this way of, of having a conversation. It, it's strangely intimate because um we're we're just well first of all you we're, we're kind of our I, voices are coming into each other's heads in a way you know it's not like talking on the phone and um and also I appreciate that we only get to work with the human voice whereas um, when you're sitting with someone in person there are all these other things going on. But the radio listener doesn't have the benefit of all of that, so right. there's a challenge in this, which I which I quite like. So we'll see how it goes. Cool. Yeah. Um, Chris, how are we doing? Do you need? Okay. Um, would you tell me uh, what you had for breakfast? What I had for breakfast? Yeah. Um, we just want to get I a had, sound check. Sure. I had two eggs over easy and. Strawberry applesauce, and then because I was feeling naughty, I had vanilla ice cream with uh, Milo, which is sort of like Ovaltine, but it's from Australia. I just got back from Australia, and I brought a can of Milo back with me. Yeah, and it's pretty much the best thing that ever existed. So I've, I had some of that too. I don't think I've ever had ice cream for breakfast. Oh, you haven't lived, <laughs> <laughs> and now I know. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's the it's the breakfast of champions. Okay. I'm going to be quiet for a minute. Chris is going to talk to the engineers. Yes, I'm hearing you and they are fiddling. I do. I have water and chapstick and yeah. Sure. How's that? That better? Okay. Okay. Um, Chris, the team over here wants to know if that sounds better on your end when I'm a little closer to the mic. Okay. James, did you hear that? Oh, uh, yeah, James James says it's one or the other, the gate or the fans. I don't... Hold on a second, they're, they're investigating. Yeah, I hear that, I hear that. 
Sorry, I can't talk to you uh, through the control room right now because we're about to do a newscast. Okay. So uh, I'll be making a couple adjustments here. Okay. There. Okay. How's that? Is that better, guys? They said it's a little bit better. They can still hear the broadband noise, but it might be. problem so what's the noise that you're hearing uh yeah there is a fan we usually it's not an issue when we're using the mics in here i don't think we, we've ever had it be an issue before Yeah, sure, I can shut it down just a minute. Do you need help, James? I know, I know. Oh, it's the fan in the computer. Okay. Oh yeah, there it goes, that's great. How's that? That's perfect. Thank you. Great. Yeah. Okay. Can we go? Do you think? Oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry there's all this talking in the back. Sure. Yeah. This is what it sounds like when I'm talking at normal volume. I'm really excited by the fact that there's a button in front of me that says cough. <laughs> I think that's pretty pretty great. <laughs> okay. I'm supposed to hit. All hit. right. Hit. How's that? Good? Yeah, that's good. Uh, we also, uh, we get to edit this, and um, so even if you didn't push the cough button and you coughed, it's okay. Right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, what? Okay. I do. Okay. How's that? Is that a little bit better? Um, yeah, I wasn't hearing an echo. That sounds fine to me. Is that good? Okay. All right. All right. Let's start then. Do you have any questions for me before we start? No, I don't think so. Okay. I, I'm, uh, I'm excited and... <laughs> and yeah. <laughs> we'll do it then. Okay. So I... Um, oh, now I'm hearing the echo. I am. 
but I'm only hearing it. I was hearing it when I was. Yeah, when I'm okay. It's pretty quiet at the like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's on like one or two at the moment. Mm-hmm. All right. How about if I just stay farther? I still hear it. I still hear it. Yeah. It's funny. I didn't. I don't hear it when I'm speaking softly at this distance. But I. I do. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Should I just try to stay at this remove? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Every technological experience is different. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, I think where I'd like to start is um, <clears throat> with your identity. <laughs> um, you, I've seen you describe yourself as half Japanese and half Brooklynese. <laughs> yes. And that Brooklynese part of you is, is Jewish. Um, and I'm I'm curious if you think about as you were growing up, you know, do you think about those identities merging or overlapping or coexisting? Well, it's funny that you asked me that today, since I just got back from my family's um, Passover Easter Seder dinner, <laughs> right? Which was wonderful, wherein we had um, matzo ball soup filled with Japanese noodles uh. and. Uh, and all kinds of great Japanese <laughs> additions. So perfect timing. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. No, I, I definitely, I definitely had both cultures in the house and around me. My mother's Japanese American, so okay. the Japanese side is pretty far back. I'm third or fourth generation. Um, so more than the Japanese culture, it's it's more the Japanese-American culture, which is definitely Mm -hmm. its own thing. But that was certainly present. My grandmother on my mom's side was interned during World War II, and there's a very strong um, Japanese-American history on on that side of the family, which is really important to me. Mm -hmm. And my father's family is Jewish. I was bat mitzvahed. Um, I was baptized in the Episcopal Church. Was that the Japanese I, side? Was that's the Japanese side? Oh, yeah, interesting. Yep. Uh-huh. And uh, I've I've since had my sins washed away in the Buddhist temple. Huh. I've made, you know, all I need to do is make a pilgrimage to Mecca, and I'm I'm got my bases covered. <laughs> You're complete. Okay. All right. And and your par- your parents, um, were they are they both photographers? Is that right? Yeah, my parents met through photography. My father, his family business is a shop for camera equipment and supplies in New York City. Mm -hmm. And his father started the business, and he and his brother run it now. And my mother, when she was in college, um, majored in communications and thought she was going to be a journalist. And then the very last semester of her senior year, she accidentally wound up in a photography class, fell madly in love with it, Mm -hmm. moved to New York City and and kind of fell into the photography world. And at one point, wandered into his store. And and the rest is history. (laughs) Okay. And it sounds like poetry was there. Um, They were either both also lovers of poetry, if not writers of poetry in your childhood. Yeah, my my favorite story to tell is that when I was a kid, from kindergarten all the way through fourth grade, I brought my lunch to school with me every day, and either my mother or my father would write 
a poem on a little piece of paper and fold it up and put it in my lunchbox so that when I got to school, when it was lunchtime, I would open it up and have a new poem waiting for me. And I have them, most of them, all in a in a in mm. various note, notebooks that I pasted together when I was a kid. Um, but so poetry was around. They were very short and often silly, sort of Dr. Susie or Shel Silverstein, e, and um, and they made it so that my association with poetry from a very early age was that it was a surprise to look forward to a gift, you know, something I could unwrap. Um, and that, that really affected the way that I feel about poetry to this day. Yeah, it was also associated with being cared for, you know, with love. Just, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, you know, I just, I love that. It's such a, it's such a beautiful thing. And, uh, um, and I, I'm so happy to hear the story. And it also, it makes me wish I could go back and do it for my children. I wonder, like a lot of people have that experience when they hear you tell the story. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I don't think I realized. I mean, I know I didn't realize at the time that it was not something <laughs> that everybody did. You thought everybody was getting poetry out of their lunchbox. Right, right, right. I also thought that everybody had a dark room in their house when they were growing up. <laughs> right. So, you know, in your official biographies, um, people will, it will often very close to the beginning say that you began performing poetry in the Bowery Poetry Club when you were 14. But somewhere I also read, you tell a story about being mysteriously entered in a poetry contest. Was that yes. before you entered the Bowery uh, Poetry Club? Yes, that's that's how I entered the Bowery Poetry Club. Oh. So. The full story is I have always loved poetry ever since I was a baby, but I only wrote very private journal poetry for the majority of my life. I had no interest in being a performer, no interest in being looked at for too long. And when I was 14 years old, I was visiting a friend's house, and there was a video playing on her on her TV, and the video was a movie called Slam Nation, which is a documentary film about... Actually, it wasn't a docu... Oh, maybe it was. I can't remember now, but it's a, it's a film about the National Poetry Slam, and I never heard of poetry slam or spoken word poetry before in and my that's life. And a slam is a competition, right? The, yes, mm-hmm. yes. The slam is the is the competitive side of it. Mm-hmm. And that's what this film was about. But it was it showed clips of various spoken word poets performing. And I thought that this was really neat. It was really exciting. It was poetry and theater combined into this mm-hmm. crazy art form. And it really made me curious. But that was about it. And then a month later, I got a letter in the mail and this is how you know I was 14, because this was pre-email. <laughs> right. I got a letter in the mail, and the letter said, Congratulations, you have been registered to compete in the New York City Teen Poetry Slam. <laughs> and if it had happened a month earlier, I would not have known what that was. Yeah. I would have, you know, discarded it as spam. But I had just seen this video. And you don't and know was, how the, how you got, you had not registered. I, I have no idea. I, I call it divine intervention. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, my parents had never heard of it before. My teachers didn't know anything about it. None of my friends had ever heard of it. Hmm. Nobody knew anything about it. And, and still no one has ever owned up to being the person to register me. Hmm. And the timing just worked. And I thought, oh, sure, I'll try this one time. It'll be fun. And I went, and it just so happened that for this event, they had rented out 
the Bowery Poetry Club. I see. For this teenage poetry slam. And I walked in, and the place was absolutely crawling with teenagers. Mm. And I immediately regretted my decision. <laughs> I was absolutely terrified. I had written one poem for this event, what, what I thought was a quote-unquote slam poem. Mm. And it was based entirely off of the three-minute clip of this movie that I had seen. And the, in the movie, the clip I had seen was very male and aggressive and <laughs> okay. indignant. And so this is what I thought, okay, this is what it has to be. So I wrote this poem, which was, which was very indignant. And it was, about, it was about the injustice of being viewed as unfeminine. <laughs> Keep in mind, I was 14 years old at the time. <laughs> Uh, so I got there and I, I did this poem, and um, the the experience was was pretty transformative. And as a result, I decided that I would come back to the Bowery Poetry Club as often as possible. But what I didn't realize at the time was that they had this particular night was a very special event for teenagers. Mm -hmm. But every other night of the year, the Bowery Poetry Club was a bar. Okay. A real bar for grown-ups. Uh -huh. and, and that's where my introduction to the adult spoken word poetry community started, was I kept showing up, mm. and I was this 14-year-old in a room full of, you know, mm. grown-ups. Okay, so the, you were 14, so are we talking, what year is this, this 2002, 2003? Yeah, 2002. 2002. Okay. So if I ask you to kind of cast your mind back to... You know, you said it was transformative. I mean, you know, what, what is your memory of what, what you discovered there that you hadn't known before? What, what it awakened in you or did to you? Oh, a lot of things from, from very small little lessons on a daily basis to larger life lessons that have led me forward. Um, so on the perhaps on the smaller level, one of the things I learned was that it was okay, as a girl, it was okay to be silly. <laughs> Which mm -hmm. doesn't sound like a terribly important lesson, but at the time, being a girl for me was a whole lot of pressure. <laughs> There's a whole lot of things I thought I needed to do in order to be a girl, to be a successful girl. Right, like and, as captured in that poem of yours about the injustice right. of being considered absolutely. unfeminine. Okay. Totally, absolutely. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I, I thought girls had to be pretty and elusive and mysterious and smart, and, mm -hmm. and plenty of girls are, absolutely. Um, but what I learned there from one poet in particular by the name of Kristen O'Keefe Aptowicz was that you could be all of those things, some of those things, none of those things, and you could also write a, a poem about fart jokes, and that was okay too. <laughs> and that was mind-blowing for me. That really was incredibly mind-blowing. Mm. Um, so that was, you know, a, perhaps a smaller lesson. And then I suppose the biggest lesson I learned was I think that the Barry Poetry Club taught me that it is equally important to listen as it is to speak. I don't think I understood that beforehand. And I think that now that's one of the founding principles upon which I operate. Right. And you, yeah, and I, that's so interesting and important. And I, it's interesting that you couple that message about it being as important to listen as to speak, even as you are 
really, you know, not only putting your voice out there, but talking about how difficult that is and helping other people put their voices, other young people in particular, put their voices out there, their poetic yeah. voices. I think, I think that there are people in the world who are too interested in hearing themselves talk. And we're all guilty of it in, in various moments, myself included. But when you're too eager to hear yourself talk, you don't listen to anybody else. Mm -hmm. And that's a problem. And then there are people who are scared of talking and are scared of telling the world their story and speaking up. And the problem with that is when they don't speak, they allow other people to speak for them. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes those people can't, can't do it justice. You know, no one can tell your story like you can. And I really, I really love hearing someone tell their story. It's, there's nothing like it. So I think the striking that balance is really important. There's something interesting what you said, too. I mean, it, it, yes, there are so many people who are just really happy to hear the sound of their own voices. Um, but on the other hand, we're, we're trained to, to be, to be, you know, when we're vocal, to be that way, right? I mean, that's how it works in media. Um, it, it's not about listening. Um, it is about expressing opinions and pushing opinions. And um, I, talk, I talk to a lot of people about, you know, poetry as something that Poetry and stories, which are two things. Well, really, your po your poems are often stories. They're almost always stories. But how, as the, you know, things that these are really essential ways that human beings have always um, conveyed meaning and truth and made sense. Um, but they they were a little bit lost, and I, I you know it, it's almost like um, just in this particular example you gave about listening as learning from that that listening is as important as telling it's like you know kind of rediscovering poetry is a bit of an antidote to some bad habits we've gotten into <laughs> <laughs> culturally totally i think i think um i don't know the the people that i have learned the most from are often people who listen the best and only speak when they have something important to say. Mm. It's it's a real skill. Yeah. It's a real talent to be that kind of person. It's it's something I admire very very much and aspire to. You've also talked a lot about how you you've come to see what you're doing, spoken word poetry and poetry and storytelling in general as at one and the same time, the most the most modern. You know, in some of the forms you're doing it, it feels new and modern, and and yet it's also the most ancient thing. Yes, yes. Um, I uh, I'm often arguing on opposite sides of one argument, depending on who I'm speaking to. Yeah. So when I have to convince a school administration to let me and my partner, Phil, come in with Project Voice and teach spoken word poetry in classrooms. I sometimes come up against the statement that, oh, that spoken word poetry stuff that's all rap music and hip-hop and bad grammar and no spelling. <laughs> right. and 
swear words and, you know, that that's that modern stuff. We don't want any part of that. And I find myself saying, no, it's not. It's ancient. It's Shakespeare. It's Homer. It's the, you know, this beautiful tradition of oral poetry is, is not new at all. Mm. But then I get into the classroom with students, and I have students who say, oh, come on, miss, you know, poetry's a, a bunch of dead guys. <laughs> and I have to say, no, poetry is, is new, and it's now, and it's real, and it's lyrics, and it is hip-hop, and it's, you know, this is, this is what it is. It's your lives now. Um, so it's both of those things. It's mm-hmm. both of those things, and we'll continue to be both of those things and and more than that i think mm-hmm. you know now we're moving into the digital world and that opens a whole whole nother box of of tools to use and and places to go with poetry right so i i want to um i want to talk about what you've what you've learned you know what you know and are learning about you know what stories and poetry work in us as human beings. Um, one thing that strikes me, so you're talking about the importance of people telling their story in, in you know, the, the way that only they can tell it. And um, a lot of your poems, you know, tell very personal, at least they take off from a personal story. Um, um, you know, going to Long Island for the summers or... Um, Oh, your poem, How Many Lives Can You Live? You know, being a little girl and wanting to be a ballerina, an astronaut, a princess, and imagining for a while that you can be all of those things. So a lot of these these experiences um, are experiences that are, that are so okay, let me start off. So, so I want to know, I want to ask you about this, what you've come to understand about this capacity of telling a particular story. In fact, the more particular and vivid it is, to actually then open up in f- and be completely accessible to other people in all their particularity. You know what I'm talking about? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I mean, it's kind of paradoxical, really. Yes, and and no. I think I think that. Hmm, how do I how do I phrase this? Here's how here's how I I explain it to my students when I'm teaching. Okay. I spend a lot of time talking about how poets, young poets especially, but all poets really, sometimes get nervous about poetry. And they think that poetry has to be about love or a poem has to be about time or it has to be about life mm-hmm. <laughs> or basically anything that was the name of a magazine at one point um, or, you know, politics or something really big and abstract because poetry is supposed to be lofty and universal. And, and the problem with that is that those are all topics that human beings have been trying to figure out since we first crawled out of the bogs. Mm-hmm. And you shouldn't have to tackle all of it in one poem. And instead, what is easier for a reader, an audience member to understand is something that they can experience with their five senses. Mm -hmm. So something that I can smell, something that I can taste, something that I can touch, something that I can hear, something I can see. That is what I can relate to. So 
even if you're talking about an experience that I haven't had before, if you're telling me about it in a way that you invoke my sensory memory and my sensory understanding of the world, we're talking about the same universe. And Mm -hmm. I can understand what you're saying. And that makes sense to me in a way that abstract terms sometimes don't. So even if I hear a story about somebody's experience that I could never have imagined, if they're explaining it using these very concrete and real sensory details, I have an access point. And I'm enthralled with, with that story. So the more specific you get, the more accessible it is to everybody else. Yeah, and in a way, the more universally accessible it becomes. Right, mm-hmm. absolutely. Mm-hmm. I remember um, a conversation I had once with Sherwin Newland. He's a doctor. He wrote a book. He's written a few books. He wrote a book that was really important for a lot of people called How We Die. Uh, and it's just, you know, about the, how the how the body, body works. But it ended up being many stories about death, death as a part of life. And... Um, one of the stories in that book that he told me got the most response from people was about his grandmother who, you know, spoke Yiddish, was an immigrant um, um, in this very conservative Hasidic family. I mean, there's a lot of particularity to that, who, who his baba was. But he talked about his baba and her death, and he got, he got letters from people all over the world. And the one he liked to talk about was, you know, the pig farmer in Iowa who said, I did not know your baba, but I knew her in another time and place. <laughs> and that, that is that power that uh, a story from life can have. I, sh- I think that's interesting, the way you talk about it hooks into our sensory places, even in what we know about the brain now. And it like, yeah. unleashes those things in us. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. You, um, I mean, here's another kind of thing you do. At the Acumen Fund meeting, um, I saw you gave a, a presentation. We, I, I, Jacqueline Novogratz was on the show last year. She's a friend. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, and I know that's a great organization. Um, you told a story about Noor Ibrahim in Cape Town, right? So... Mm-hmm. And it was a beautiful story about all kinds of things. It was, it was, it was about Norbert Hume. It was about life. I found myself asking, is that a true story? <laughs> and, you know, is that something, is, it, is this someone you knew? Is this someone real? But that also then led me to think about, you know, I want to ask you, how do you think about, you know, um, what kind of truth we're dealing in, um, in when you tell a, when, within a poem like that, in a story like that? Sure. Yeah. Um, well, let's see. So one of my favorite poets is a poet by the name of Reeves. And he has a poem that is about mockingbirds and letting mockingbirds loose and having mockingbirds um, quote back to to him about all the different sound bites that they hear from different people. And it's this fantastical, imaginary world of, of mockingbirds flying around and, and stealing sound bites from everyone. And it's a brilliant poem. And he has another poem, which is about having a, one, having a, a first night romance with a, with a woman and then waking up the next morning and building her a kite out of 
brown paper packages and mm. um, wire hangers and so on. And he says that people always ask him, who is that woman? Are you still with her? Uh, does she still have the kite? <laughs> yeah. You know, are you still in love? And nobody ever asks him if the Mockingbird poem is true. Mm. And he says, and I, I respect this very much, that part of the job of a poet is soul-bearing, but that's not the entire job of the poet. The job of the poet is also entertaining and is also um, education. And so sometimes I think people want everything a poet writes to be autobiographical, and that would be exhausting. Right. <laughs> And probably yeah. not terribly interesting all uh -huh. the time. You know, there uh -huh. are days when my autobiography consists of just doing a whole lot of laundry. Yeah. <laughs> and I guess I could write a poem about that, too. Mm -hmm. But, you know, there are plenty of times when um, my job as poet is is diving into my personal experience and my my own story. And then there are times when it's exploring other places. So... The specific poem you're asking about, um, which is is uh, called Chochalotza, I traveled to Cape Town when I was a freshman in college, and I went to District 6, which is an area of Cape Town, mm -hmm. which is what that poem is about. And there is now a small museum there, which is the District 6 Museum, I suppose. And they have all of these artifacts from this era and from this story of District 6. I have a real affinity for things that have been abandoned or things that were once alive and are no longer. Hmm. Um, ghost towns. Um, I have another poem about Hiroshima. Yes. Um, you know, this, this, for some reason, is a pattern that appears in my life um, and has become important to me. I grew up very near um, the World Trade Center. Um, my father is a photographer, and he... <laughs> I, I tell people that some families go on family vacation to, you know, go skiing or something. But when my family goes on family vacation, we go ruin hunting so that we can go, <laughs> okay. go photograph things that are falling apart. Um, so this, this in general, um, this disintegration or this abandonment or this forced abandonment in the case of District 6 is something that I um, always find myself being moved towards. So I was in this museum and I was incredibly shaken up by what I was seeing. And there were a lot of artifacts and a lot of things. And on one of the walls in the museum was a photograph and the photograph was of pigeons. And under the photograph was a little plaque. And the plaque had a very brief paragraph explaining that these pigeons belonged to Nor Ibrahim mm. and mm. that these pigeons were homing pigeons and that after they had left District 6, after he had been forced to leave, the pigeons would return to the plot of land where his house no longer was. Mm. And for some reason, that singular visual and moment to me encapsulated 
everything that I was feeling about this entire place. Hmm. Um, and so I had done all of this research about other things about District 6. Um, and so I incorporated all of that information and all of that research in um, to, to building that story beyond more than the, than the paragraph it was. I remember talking to Elizabeth Alexander once, and she talked about how a poem is not necessarily about microscopic, about things that are true, factually true, but about undergirding truths. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, there's a, there's a poet, Taylor Molly, who likes to say um, poetry is not about fact, it's about truth. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, oh, I wanted to ask you the singing, the song that you started <laughs> and began that with. Is that also from that part of, was that from Cape Town? Tell me about that. That So um, that song is has a very deep and complicated history in, um, in that part of the world. And uh, I had sung that song in high school. I went to an international school. Oh, my gosh. And in, in chorus, we used to sing that song. And, of course, I had no concept of the historical resonance of that song until I got to South Africa. And there was one night where um, a bunch of the people that I was staying with uh, had a bonfire and we were sharing stories and I was asked to share poems and people started singing and, and they started singing that song. Mm. And I said, whoa, I, I know this song. <laughs> I can mm. sing this song too. Mm. And and I had a real, I was I was given a real lesson in, in why that song was more than I understood it to be. And I, I really appreciated that and I connected it to that experience. Yeah. What was it about, the song? The song, what language is it in, first of all? The the song, I believe, is I'm gonna I'm I'm not gonna remember this now. But I, I, I believe when it was um sang most commonly was were by people who were fleeing um to Zimbabwe. Okay. I believe. Um, but I don't know if I would quote me on that. Okay, all right. No, we might, you know, we might play it in the show. So I, I, that's why I'm asking. But if we do, we, we can find out more. Um, the Hiroshima, um, Hiroshima poem. I, I heard you. Um, I heard. I've, I've watched you now online. Um, do you say? Do you say reciting a poem, or how do you talk about it? What, what <laughs> verb would you use? Because reciting say, a poem doesn't really sound right for what you do. I, I say performing. Okay. I, I I say that I perform. Yeah. Okay. So when I first experienced you, you were performing that, and um, you know that one again. I mean, it's about an historical moment. It's also about your grandparents. It's it's also it ends up being a reminder that it's a collective story. That that story in some way belongs to all of us, although we don't think about that very often. Um, hmm. There's something in there that's so striking about uh, you as an old soul, right? What was it your your grandmother <laughs> said you, when you were born? You have old eyes, or was that your mother? You have old My eyes. My mother, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. That that poem. I, uh, when I was a senior in high school, when I was graduating high school, my cousins on my mother's side, my cousins and I decided to go to Japan for the summer. 
as a rediscover the motherland okay. trip. And it was my first time in Japan. And coinciding with this was the fact that I had been accepted onto a team that was going to compete in the National Poetry Slam. Now, I had been, when I was, let's see, when I was 16, I qualified to be a part of a, a national team in New York City. But the National Poetry Slam is usually a 21-year-old and up event because a lot of the events are, are hosted in bars. So I was 16, <laughs> and I could not go, and I was heartbroken. Okay. And the next year, I was 17, and I competed, and I got far as well. But once again, <laughs> I was 17. But this time, this year in particular, it just so happened that Nationals was going to be in Austin, Texas. Okay. And Austin had agreed that this event was going to be 18 and up. Now, Nationals was in August, and I turned 18 in June. <laughs> so I made it by a hair, and I was going to get to go to the National Poetry Slam. And I was over them. I could not have been more ecstatic. But I was also absolutely terrified mm. and convinced that I was wholly out of my league completely in over my head, just, you know, what what have I gotten myself into? It's all well and good when I'm in this safe, lovely Bowery Poetry Club where everybody knows me and, and is nice to me, but mm -hmm. put me on the national stage and I don't know how I'm going to survive. So all summer I had been putting a lot of pressure on myself that I needed to write the best poem ever. <laughs> okay. And... Then I went to Japan, hmm. and when I was in Japan, I visited Hiroshima and s spent a lot of time thinking about what it is we mean when we say we want to leave an impact and hmm. what that means for me and what that means for my family, what that means for others, and what I'm looking for um, in terms of connection. Mm. And that's, that's where that, that poem was born. I think um, when you talk about your, your terror and your nerves, which you do, you write about that and you, you talk really openly about that. And as I got into this, get, getting ready to interview you, I, I, I watched you kind of grow up, right? I, wa I watched you perform <laughs> poems years ago because it's all now captured online. Right. And I can, and you know, there's clearly an evolution. Like there is any, in any life, and you do something over and over again, um, you grow into it. But I, I can imagine that it's really helpful for the young people you work with that, that you speak about that so openly. There's these lines, and I think it's in Hiroshima, but you tell me. I remember being struck by this because I watched you on stage and you do exude this consummate poise and these lines were so beautiful and my, my self-confidence can be measured out in teaspoons mixed into my poetry, but it still feels funny in my mouth. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that is in Hiroshima. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, um, I don't have a background as a performer. I did not act 
um, when I was a, a kid, I was not interested in being on stage. It really did happen by accident. You now know the accident story. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've always been fascinated by writing and stories. And it just so happened that the art form I kind of fell into, the medium requires that I get on a stage to do that. Right. And um, it has changed, but it hasn't gone away, that fear. I think now the difference is that I know what that fear is. Mm-hmm. So when it happens and when it appears, I can say, okay, I'm terrified of going on stage. That's what that is. I know it and I recognize it and that's what I'm experiencing right now. Okay, great. Now go on stage. <laughs> right. Um, so so I'm, I still get very anxious and very, very nervous, but at least now it's like an old friend <laughs> right, right. that I can't get rid of, so I might as well get used to. <laughs> yeah. Something I really appreciate is your care with language. And I, I saw where you talked about, you know, one of your first guidelines for spoken word poetry when you're teaching it is about choosing language carefully. And I kind of feel like that's a waning art in America. I mean, the the upside is we're creative with language. The downside is we're not careful with language. I don't know. How do you, how do you think about that? Oh, it's a really hard question. I am... Um, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how to feel about it. I think that language is a lot more powerful than people give it credit for. That it it can withstand our carelessness? Is that what you're saying? Oh, no, no, no. I mean that I think people underestimate the effect Mm, that language has. Right. And so when we're careless with language, that's how people are hurt. That's how people get in trouble. Mm. That's how people misunderstand one another. That's how, you know, dangerous situations happen, which is not to say that everyone always has to spend 20 minutes thinking about what they're going to say before they say it. But I'm very lucky that in poetry, I am allowed to take my time and consider the words that I want to say before I say them. I can't imagine being someone that has to you know, be on the news every night yeah. and say things immediately as they come into their head, running the risk of not knowing what it is that will will happen. Um, so I, I think being careful with language is important. I also think that that's, that's where the beauty of language lies, is that instead of using this word, if you take the time to consider this other word, maybe that other word has more connotation that is going to help you in what you're trying to express. You know, it gives you more freedom in being as specific in your language as you you can be, which mm. is fantastic. I don't, I don't tweet. I don't tw- use Twitter, and um, a lot of people that are performers do because it's a way of connecting with a fan base, I guess, and saying, you know, I'm doing this show here. Everyone, come out and see me, um, and it's a, a fast communication method. But I I think one of the reasons I don't use it just on a personal level is that that speed doesn't allow me care. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm. That also, um, that 
importance of taking care with language also seems connected to me with that value you talked about a minute ago of um, understanding the connection between talking and listening. Mm. That having the courage to tell your story also is about having the humility to listen to other people's stories. I mean, that's also what gets lost in when all speech is um, impromptu. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I don't think that, that those forms are evil by no. any means. I think that they're doing a lot of creative and interesting things in a new world. Mm-hmm. I just I just know that for me personally, I like when I'm able to craft language in the way that I want to. That's why I fell in love with poetry and language in the first place. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to give up that relationship to words. Right. I I sense also you you talk a lot. I mean you you use the word connection a lot and act, also in in Hiroshima there's um you talk you know you 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 talk about the the uh, trying to connect every day um the the impossible connection and um you you talk about um your parents named you Sarah, which is a biblical name, which I, I love this. You know, that, I, mean, I, I don't think people, most people know this, even people who know these stories, that it's about, you know, she laughed. Sarah laughed. Yeah. <laughs> but that, that difficulty of connecting, I mean, then using language or using whatever we have to connect is, it's really, you know, it's, it's, it's a very um, essential existential dilemma for human beings but but somehow it, it's something you've really latched onto at a pretty young age i mean seeing that difficulty and really approaching it with great care well i think that i was not i think i know i was incredibly blessed to find spoken word poetry when i was 14 you know that that could not have come at a more perfect time for me it was a moment where i was barely out out of the childhood gate, mm-hmm. barely, and not nearly sure of what the heck adulthood was supposed to be. And yet, I hated feeling like I wasn't important enough to contribute to that world. Yet. Right, right. That there was like this waiting time that I had to figure out all of these things first before I was allowed to <laughs> right. contribute. Yeah, And I think that that's central to when I write poetry is when I'm trying to figure something out pretty much exclusively. Mm. I write a poem when there's something I can't, I cannot navigate without poetry. And in doing so, when I put that poem out into the world, what I'm saying is, hey, look at me trying to figure this thing out, which I haven't yet, but this is me trying. If you're trying to figure this out too, maybe this can help you or maybe you can help me. <laughs> and then maybe together we can make something make more sense than it does right now. Um, and I think that that's what it means to be human is to volunteer your experience in an effort to say, hey, this is what I've got. What do you have over there? Mm. Can we make something work here? It, it's such an important way to think about this, too. Um, it, it gets back at the, the, the power of language 
the, the power of words, right? I mean, as tools in themselves. Because another way people might get feel frustrated at 13 or 14 is, you know, what do they have to work with, right? What do they have to bring into the world? Right, absolutely. And part of what I was so lucky to hear when I was that age, mm-hmm. or maybe not explicitly, but what I was able to witness and understand from the people around me was, hey, it's okay if you don't have anything figured out yet. Yeah, That's fine. Write about that. Write about being 14. Write about, you know, how you're totally clueless. Right. And that's, that in that's itself where you're is at. powerful. To, that ex- absolutely. Absolutely. Right? And that's one of the things that I try very hard to teach is that you don't have to you don't have to be anywhere other than where you are right now. And all we're asking is for you to share where you are right now with us Mm -hmm. so that we can try to understand it and we can learn from it. Because regardless of what your age is, you've definitely gone through things I haven't gone through and I want to know about it and I want to learn from it. Hmm. And I mean, those are, those are, the basic questions uh, that's the ba- a basic task of making meaning in in human life um i think that the other poet i've spoken with most recently was christian wyman who's the editor of poetry magazine yeah and um it, it's become really important to him i mean he's had all kinds of cathartic personal experiences including including being diagnosed diagnosed with cancer but um but also finding love <laughs> and um He's thinking a lot about um, the language we have to talk about what it means to be spiritual and religious now. And, you know, for me, those que- the way what you just talked about figuring out like, who you are and what you have to offer and what you have to say and what it all means, those, those are, you know, the a- animating spiritual questions. He, he really feels like now in this generation in these generations coming up that, that there's a real grasping that there has to be new language not not doing away with traditional religious forms but new ways to express what it means to be spiritual what it means to be religious now i don't is that something you think about at all well maybe i haven't thought about it until you're bringing it up right now but i think that i think that that makes sense i think that a lot of what religion was born out of was people trying to figure things out. Yeah, right, right. right. And, that, and that maybe just as, just as a child, so I can, only, I can only speak from my experience, but I know that what I was trying to figure out when I was 14 is different from what I'm trying to figure out when I'm 23. Yeah. And the poems are different as a result, and the language is different, and... The experiences are different, and I'm, but I'm still trying to figure things out, absolutely. And so maybe what he's saying, and I don't know exactly, but it sounds like maybe what he's saying is religion is to people as poetry is to me. So mm-hmm. if that's the case, then back in the day when religion was younger, we were trying to figure out a certain amount of things, and we turned to religion for that. Mm-hmm. And now we're still trying to figure out all kinds of things, but maybe what we're trying to figure out is a little bit different than what it used to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that. Um, I did want to ask you that the TED Talk you gave was the, the, the theme for that particular gathering was the rediscovery of wonder, which is just a, a, a phrase I love. Um, 
and I know you don't like to be asked to speak for the young, <laughs> to speak for your generation. Um, but but I do. I've had a lot of conversations with people uh, across the years recently about, you know, for example, I was talking to somebody who watches uh, t- television, and she said there's this big thrust in television now that people call reenchanting the world, which is to me is you know connected to the rediscovery of wonder. Mm. I, I don't know if you have any any connection to that phrase yourself, but you were part of that event. And I just wonder if that language or that idea is resonant for you. And also in terms of media, you know, in terms of story and poetry and what happens online and even television and movies, because you're involved in a lot of other things. Yeah, that, <laughs> when I got the phone call about, possibly being involved with the TED conference. First of all, I had about a heart attack and a half. (laughs) And I was still a senior in college at the time. And (laughs) I was planning on graduating and being a poet. And I had very, you know, simple and straightforward dreams and and goals, and um, I still do, really. But I had loved TED for so long because it is bringing so many people's stories into the world and giving people access to them, and that's what I love. That's what I dream of, absolutely. So I had known about TED for a long time. I'd been a big fan of it, and then they contacted me, and when they initially contacted me, the uh, the phone call was was simply you know we don't know yet what capacity we'd like you to be involved you know there are these the, the big TED talks that happen that are eighteen minutes long but there are also smaller six minute talks that happen in between um, we also bring in performers as entertainment so they don't do talks but they would perform for for five to ten minutes and is that something you'd be interested in and I said absolutely I will hold your towels if right. you okay I will you know like anything anything you want I will do to be in that space and and get to see those people tell their stories um and then she said well the 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 topic of this year's conference is the rediscovery of wonder what does that mean to you and I said well it kind of sounds like my job description (laughs) (laughs) you know at the time I was really planning on on moving forward with project voice and a lot of what I was doing in schools as of late had been trying to convince teenagers that it was okay to be affected by things Mm. and affected by emotion and that it was their job to turn that effect into something new and original and authentic to them. And there was so much resistance to admitting that anything got to them in Gosh. any way. Yeah, there was so much. There was so much like I that you know nothing is nothing is impressive. Nothing is scary. Nothing intimidates me. Nothing mm. is nothing is moving. You know, because it's really scary to to be vulnerable right. ever, but especially when you're a teenager. 
that's just the worst is to admit to being vulnerable for them. Mm -hmm. And so, so much of what I was doing was trying to say, listen, it's okay. It's okay to be scared. It's okay to be impressed. It's okay to be amused. It's okay to have these things that shake your world up a little bit. And then turn that around and tell me about it and put it into words so that other people know what it feels like to have this experience that has moved you in some way. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was, I was really working at... at <laughs> trying to get people to rediscover wonder. Uh, and so I started talking about this, and, and by the end of the conversation, she said, okay, I changed my mind. I want you to give a talk. <laughs> Good. <laughs> I said, wait a second, hold on, hold on. <laughs> what, what other media do you take in? I mean, I, I, as I say, I've talked to people who really see that happening in television, and even in the form of vampires and zombies, and right? I mean, it's in all kinds of ways, fairy tales. But um, what, what, what else do you take in? in the culture at large, where oh, you think man. wonder is being rediscovered? Oh, well, both of my parents are photographers, so I grew up with a very visual background. Um, and I think that one of the things that's a hot topic in, in my family and in my world is the change of photography Mm -hmm. and how it used to be an art form reserved for specialists. And now it is for anyone <laughs> with a cell phone. Yeah, every two-year-old can take a right. photograph. Right, and, yeah. and what does that mean? And yeah. what does that mean for an art form? And what does that do? And what does it, you know, what does it change? Um, so that's something that is, is constantly in my, in my brain space that I'm, that I'm thinking about. And I, um, I studied a lot of film when I was in school, I actually thought I was going to go on to film school and be a filmmaker, which I still might. You never know. Um, but I have a, a, a long background in, in documentary filmmaking, and um, and so I'm a big cinema file, mm -hmm. if you will. And uh, I never really watched TV when I was growing up, but now, and I, I don't really, I don't have a TV now either. But I, I do notice that the world of television shows has expanded in a substantial way that what you can do with that form yeah. is really changing um, in an amazing way, especially for writers and especially the way that writers can tell a story through a television series is really changing. Yes. Um, and that's really fascinating to me as well. Um so, so those are those are two big ones that I'm that I'm particularly enthralled with. And then, I I am um, I'm a big theater geek. I always have been an appreciator of of theater. Um, and and my perhaps not so secret dream of my life <laughs> is to is to write musicals. Oh, really? And yeah, and and someday I'll I'll get there. Um, but that's my that's my like deep seated. <laughs> one day dream is to be able to write musicals and I think that's a form as well that we're seeing changes in which is really exciting and and what you can do in musical theater um, that perhaps wasn't imagined before so it's a really exciting time to to be looking around and seeing and and learning and taking in in cultural all different forms yeah yeah why is there um a definition of the word flux on your web page, on the homepage. <laughs> um, 
I like words. I really love words. I love strange words. I love words in other languages. I love words that sound funny and taste funny and make me think. And I love words that mean exactly what I need them to mean. <laughs> that's the best when you have a word that's that's so specific to one moment or one emotion and you go, yes, that's exactly what I need it to mean. Because it doesn't happen all the time. There are plenty of times where right. it, it's kind of this, but it's not really that. And, it, you know, it's a little bit of this word, but not not entirely. And so the few times when it, when it fits like a glove, it's just such a great feeling. And um, the word flux, when I found that word, I just loved it. I loved the way it sound it was you know it was fluffy but it was sharp mm. it was you know it it was fun to say it was hard to rhyme it was <laughs> it was just everything that i wanted and also my life um my life is is just eternally in flux and it always has been and probably always will be which is which is amazing and and i i choose to recognize it and embrace it rather than be scared of it yeah. That may be your last word, but I I did want to ask you one of the interesting things you did in your TED talk, you you performed a poem and then you talked a little bit before you performed again and you 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 gave them the audience an exercise that you wanted them spontaneously without thinking too hard about it to think about three things they knew to be true. Um is that an exercise you do with students? Is, Absolutely. Is that, yeah. And what Absolutely. And what what happens? I mean, what, why do you do that? Oh, I do it for a lot of reasons. So when I do it in a classroom, I usually say that I want you to write five things you know to be true. Mm-hmm. And they can be about anything you want. It can be about science, history, what you had for breakfast, your family, your favorite sports team, the boy you have a crush on, whatever you want it to be. There's only two rules. The first rule is don't think too hard. And the second rule is each answer you give, try to give it a little bit more meat than just one line. Mm. So, for example, instead of saying, I don't know, instead of saying, I know my name is Sarah, which is sort of boring, I would say, I know my name is Sarah because my parents named me after my grandfather, Stuart, which is weird because that's a boy's name, but for some reason it made sense to them. <laughs> okay. right? So just yeah. a little bit more cushion to every answer. And, and then I give them about six and a half minutes, and they have to go. And, and part of the reason that I only give people a shorter amount of time than they need is because if I gave people 20 minutes to do it, then they would spend the time going, okay, what is going to make me sound the smartest? Right, right. Or what's going to make me look really good in front of this room full of people? What's going to make me look deep? They would edit. And that's not the point. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And that's what not it, the what point. What is the point? What does it do? What it does is it makes people put down on paper what is already bubbling around in their head. Mm. Oftentimes when when people say, oh, I I don't know what to write, I can't write, I don't have anything to write, or I I sit down and I look at a blank screen, I look at a blank page and I freak out because I don't don't know how to start from scratch. Well, the the truth of the matter is you're never starting from scratch. You're full of a hundred million thoughts and ideas and feelings and emotions and reactions. But most of the time you disregard them as being unimportant and unpoetic. But when you are force yourself to put them down on paper and just look at them for a second and go, hey, you know what? I could totally write a poem about how much laundry I have to do today. I could totally write a poem about, you know, how that phone call with my cousin was weird last week, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. So by giving them a short amount of time, what it does is it makes people just 
put down on paper whatever it is that's in their head. And then they can take a better look at it in the light of day and say, oh, hold on a second. I could probably talk about this for a little while. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that happens, and I've, I've, I've said this, I think I said that in the talk, um, but I've, if you do this in long enough, instead of five things I know to be true, for example, if, if everyone did 50 things I know to be true, and then everyone read all of them out loud, at a certain point, four things start to happen. And I have seen this happen in workshops all the time. The first thing that happens is somebody has something on their list that another person has the exact same thing okay. or something very similar, right. right? And then the second thing that happens is somebody has something on their list and someone else has the exact opposite, and the third thing that happens is somebody has something that everyone else has never even heard of before. <laughs> and they're like, what? What are you talking about? What, like, explain yourself. Mm-hmm. And the fourth thing that happens is somebody has something that the rest of the room thought they knew about, but this person is introducing a new way of looking at it or a new angle to consider. Mm-hmm. And those four moments are actually four intersections. And it's an intersection between when you're writing about something that you are excited and want to talk about and when you're writing about something that other people are going to be invested in as well, either Mm -hmm. because they agree with you, they disagree with you, they're curious and they want you to explain, or you're introducing a new perspective on things that they didn't consider before. So when you find those four intersections, one of those four intersections, that's a dead giveaway that this is a place where a poem could start. Okay. So if I asked you right now, what are three things you know to be true right now as we're speaking? <laughs> How would your answer oh, be? Three things I know to be true right now. Yeah. Um, let's see. On that stage at TED, you just held up three fingers and you gave everybody about a second for each answer. Yeah. No, totally. I could, you know, I, I do this exercise weekly. And mm-hmm. one of my favorite things is what are the things that change on a weekly basis? Right. And what are the things that I always know that never change? Um, one thing I know to be true is that I once went on an adventure with my mother in Prague in search of a green rock from a meteor that I was convinced was kryptonite and she tried to explain to me was not. A second thing I know to be true is that there is a giant box of Easter egg candy peeps and chocolate-covered matzah in my house waiting for me when I get home. And the third thing I know to be true is that I have a suitcase full of clothes that I still haven't unpacked yet that I need to unpack when I get back. (laughs) There's the thing you and I have in common. (laughs) (laughs) See? I told you. It only takes takes three and you find it. Oh, this is great. I'm really happy that you're out there doing what you're doing and we're going to have a lot of fun putting this on the air so thank you thanks for making thank the time thank you thanks yeah. so much and we'll we'll be I in really contact if we have questions we might shoot you an email but um we'll we'll keep you informed and i don't think it'll be too long before before we produce it okay super okay do you want me to do you want me to look up that information for you just to, oh, just so that you have you know on I think it on Chocholozo or it's okay if it's or do you um, want me to if it's not too hard if it's easy for you that'd be great even if you could just yeah. find um I don't know, you know, any any web page that had a translation or story behind it or anything like sure, that. Sure, sure. I know that a rough translation, like a super rough translation mm-hmm. is actually um, part of what I say in the poem actually is based off of oh, like a very rough okay. translation, which is um, 
we sing a song of strength, we go on like a rolling train forever um, is part of it. But that's a very loose translation. Mm-hmm. Um, so I could definitely find you a better I, one. I don't want you to do too much work on this. I mean, even if we just had the title of it, we could dig around and, sure. and find, sure. it, find okay. out what we needed. Okay, thank you. Have yeah, a good rest absolutely. of your day. Thank you, Krista. Right. Yeah, take care. Bye-bye.